Welcome to the Crossing Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for listening. We're glad you've connected with us. Our hope is that God speaks to your heart in a new way through this message. If you're new to the Crossing Church, please feel free to reach out to us by visiting our contact page or by paying us a visit. We would love to meet you. This week's sermon podcast begins in three, two, one. There are two expressions that I have used from time to time. And as I was thinking about it, I'm not sure if everybody does, but I will find out in just a few seconds now. I've used it many, many times, uh, these two expressions, when it was appropriate throughout my lifetime. And I think that a lot of us probably use it. Uh, Both of these phrases are used when the speaker of the phrase, like myself or you maybe, is trying to get someone to change their course, or at least expressing a wish that someone would change their course or alter their normal operating procedures. Because their normal operating procedures are causing pain for themselves and pain for others. We see it, we want them to change, so we utter these expressions. They're very, very similar, these two expressions, just a little bit of difference, and we're going to talk about that. Here's the first one, and uh, let me put it in a sentence so you know how to use it, okay? I wish someone could talk some sense into him. Have you ever used that phrase? Has anybody ever used that phrase? I wish someone would just talk some sense into this person. When was the last time you used it? Well, for most of us, Never. So, but, but some of us have. And I bet you if you did use it, you probably use it when, you know, when you're looking at a teenager who sees no correlation between study and making good grades. You know, and you say to them, I wish someone would talk some sense into you. Or maybe you used it when a friend at work is about to throw his or her marriage out the window for a passing fancy in the next cubicle at work. And you whispered to a friend, you said, I wish someone could talk some sense into him. Or someone you love said, I've narrowed my choices for president this year to Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders. And you said, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. That's just a little uh, political joke. It's just a little political joke. We have all kinds of jokes that we use here, and that's a, that's a political one. Just kidding. Well, what, is that, what does that phrase mean, really? What does that phrase really mean? I wish someone could talk some sense into him. Well, talking, we know what talking is. I'm doing it right now. It's the way humans communicate for the most part. They form words. It's not just sounds. The words have meanings. Sense. Sense, basically, when you go back to the the root of the word, no matter how it's used in our culture, it's always talking about the five senses. The sense of sight and hearing and smell and taste and touch by which animals and human beings perceive stimuli originating from outside or inside their bodies. Now, one or more of those senses, when they're not in good working order, whether it's, whether it's taste or smell or touch, no matter what it is, when they're not working in good order, you do not perceive the world as other people perceive the world. You don't. If you can't see, attending a baseball game is just, it's not as enjoyable as it is for other people. You know, you can't see the green, gray. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, just you break through the corridors into the stands and you see that green grass and it's that alone was for me was worth it it's a sensory sensation if you can't smell there is actually a condition it's called anosmia and i know i didn't pronounce that probably right anosmia you probably if if you can't smell you wouldn't really be interested in shopping at the armani perfume center 
at, you know, Lord and Taylor's. If you can't taste and you go and visit a high-end restaurant while everybody else is ooing and aahing, you know, over the food, you're just going to be frustrated. There's no sense even going because, you know what, you cannot experience the food as other people are experiencing. And if you have no sensation, if somehow the sensation, let's say, in your feet disappears, tap dancing is out. You're never going to be able to do that. And if you can't hear, those $130 orchestra season tickets at the Metropolitan Opera would be an absolute waste of time. When our senses aren't working, or they're kind of working in a a low-grade way, we are missing out. You miss out. You can't experience reality as others do. Your world is smaller. It just is. Now, spiritually speaking, people whose senses have been stunted, they also live in a small world, though often they don't even know it. They don't even realize it. And they begin to act in ways that are hurtful and harmful to themselves, but also to other people around them. When someone is hurting themselves, is anybody an island? There's always somebody around them that they're hurting also. And it's almost as if, listen, it's almost as if they begin to leave reality as we know it. You know, they lose feeling for others. They become deaf to reason. They become terribly nearsighted, you know, being able to see just about as far as the end of their nose, and that's about it. Things which once brought them satisfaction now are as tasteless as styrofoam in their mouth. And other people see that. When people aren't working, their senses aren't working, their spiritual senses especially, there are people around you that see that when you're not operating fully. And often they see someone who basically is heading for a disaster. They see someone, if they continue in the same direction, are heading over the cliff. They know that these people or this person is not really experiencing full reality. So the expression, I wish someone could talk sense into him, is uttered by one who sees the problem and wants the person to once again, or for the first time, enter into reality. Start using their senses again. You know, sometimes a stern talking to someone like that is all that is needed, and it's just what's needed. A good biblical example is David, uh, King David, and uh, after Nathan, remember Nathan the prophet, after his sin with Bathsheba, and even murdering Uriah, her husband, and, and Nathan went to him, and he said, you're the guy. You're the, you know, he tells him this big story, and David gets all, he's just infuriated about an injustice that Nathan had told him about in this story, and he says, you're the guy. You're the guy guilty of injustice. And what did David do? Did he kill? Did he kill Nathan? No, he didn't. You know what he did? He, he crumbled. He fell apart. He wrote Psalm 51. And he understood. See, all David needed was a good talking to. He needed someone of courage, someone of fine ethics, someone of character, someone who heard the voice of God to go to him and say, guess what? You're in trouble. You've done something terrible. And you need to make it right. Sometimes words are all you need. But you know what, the sad thing, the sad thing is that often words aren't enough. Words simply will not do the trick. It's not enough sometimes words for at-risk people to kind of reel them in. Sometimes it takes more radical remedies to stop someone from inflicting pain on themselves and on others. 
All right, now the second phrase, the second idiom I want to bring up. Very, very similar to the first, and here it is. It goes like this. I wish someone would knock some sense into him. Very, very similar, aren't they? There's only one word difference, right? What's the difference? Second one. Yeah, it, we, it is like a little bit of a violent kind of painful, you know, injection of a word that very similar sentiments. Both phrases, do the sentiments express that someone needs to have their senses revived and reconstructed, reconstituted. But in the second example, you know why? It's probably already happened and talk is not, not enough. Knocking gives the picture of someone coming up to you and slapping you upside the head, right? That's the mental picture you get. Now, in most cases, when you get to the point where you utter the second phrase, you know, I want to wish somebody would knock some sense into you, talk hasn't worked. It's already been, it's probably been done a thousand times. You know, he's still combing home drunk. She is still verbally abusive. She's been talked to a thousand times. She's still, her tongue is acid. She's still taking people down with her destructive gossip. You know, he or she is still sexually out of context and out of control, and they're inflicting enormous soul damage on themselves and other people around them. Even after the stern lectures, the talk didn't work. Something else is needed. What is needed is for a shock action to be introduced into the narrative. And when that happens, when a shocking event enters into a narrative, usually, almost always, it inflicts some sort of pain. There's some sort of pain involved. When you say, I wish someone would knock some sense into her, the meaning is clear. This person needs a wake-up call. This person needs to come to their senses. This person needs to gain a new understanding, needs to understand what good judgment is, come to a realistic point of view, to become reasonable once again. They need a jolt that mere verbal interaction cannot or has not accomplished. The prodigal son needed something more than a good talking to. You think before the prodigal son left for the far country, you think his dad ever said to him, son, don't do this. Don't do this. You're going to a place, you know what? I know what's out there. You have no idea in your youth what's out there. You are going to get chewed up and spit out. You will be scarred for life. Please don't do what you're about to do. You think his dad ever said that? Or when he came to his father and wanted his inheritance, which is in effect of saying, Dad, I, wish, I can't wait for you to die. You can't die quick enough for me. Please give me my inheritance. Or do you think the father just said, oh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Here you go. You know what? Out of the house. Father's heart was broken. But, folks, I have to tell you something right now. And the scripture is very, very clear about that. It was not until he found himself tending a despised, unclean animal. It was not until he was literally in the pig pen that he regained what he had lost. The text in the Gospel of Luke says, literally it says this, he came to his senses. He came to his senses because he had lost his senses, which led him to the far country. Now, the question is, why in the world, why in the world would a person want to see someone they love or care for have pain introduced into their life? That's why. <laughs> because they love them. And they see that if things don't change, there will be a very bad ending. Now, this morning, 
As we continue in the book of Habakkuk, we look at a prophet who was given the unenviable task, we started last week, to deliver a message of discipline to a nation of people whom God had chosen to bless uh, bring a blessing to the world through, but who had lost their senses and had become so dull spiritually that, you know what, they were no good to themselves and they were no good to anybody around them. See, that happens to nations. It happens to individuals, doesn't it? And when God goes into motion to reel back one who has taken off down the wrong path, one who thinks that they've expanded their world, but really has constricted their world, and they've lost their senses, there are always questions. There are always questions involved. Always questions when the pain begins. Questions like, why is this happening? Why is God doing this? How long is this going to last? Most of the time, we don't have a clue even as to why we are in pain. Habakkuk says it may not be as big a mystery as we really think, and that's what we want to talk about this morning. Why is this happening? Habakkuk was asking that, and the people of Judah were going to soon be asking that. The prophet, when the book starts, you know what? He already knew the answer. He actually already knew the answer to that question. For immediately he embarks in his book in chapter 1, and we looked at it last week, on a tour of his own community, which is not, it's not a pretty tour. Uh, you know, and he, he goes into this deep time of soul searching in his own heart. And what he finds is a people who many, many years before had begun to take on the distinctions of their culture. Not the good distinctions, the evil distinctions of their culture, which very slowly eroded their senses till they got to the point where, you know what? Words were no longer enough. Words were no longer enough. I've been going through the book of Deuteronomy uh, in the morning, just in my own personal devotional time, and Moses is preaching to the people. And those uh, of you who may know, God said to Moses, you ain't going into the land, but preach to the people, reminding them everything we've said up till now. So he does three sermons. The book of Deuteronomy is three sermons. And he preaches these three sermons Folks, i got to tell you, I don't know if it's ever jumped out at me before. Maybe because I'm reading through it in large chunks. How many times he says the exact same thing? When you get there, be careful. Don't start taking on the practices of the nations around you. If you do, they're going to bring you down, and you'll not receive the blessing that I want to pour out about you. He says that a hundred different ways. And so you start reading it, and you start going, were well, these people just stupid? Maybe they, you know, all of Israel are just a bunch of idiots. They have, everybody had a low IQ, right? You know, low energy. You know, low energy, low IQ, whatever, you know. And he had to keep mentioning it again and again and again and again. Hey, listen, if I was a person in the crowd, you read through the book of Deuteronomy, I would say, what do you think, I'm stupid? I didn't hear you. I heard you. You just said it 50 times, but see, it wasn't that they were stupid. Moses understood that the surrounding nations would be powerful in the lives of his people. Their distinctives, their sinful distinctives, they would be seductive. They would promise the world, but they would only deliver destruction. And in the process, his people would lose their senses. And as Habakkuk looks out, he finds that hundreds of years after those three sermons by Moses were given... Only a few people, only a few had maintained their senses. Only a few people were paying serious attention to what God expected. And Habakkuk, like the prophet Jeremiah, were heartbroken. Their their hearts were absolutely shattered. These were the people he loved. He loved these people. And he sees the end of the talking phase approaching fast. 
and the hammer about to come down. So he sees that. He knows it's coming. The pain was about to begin. The world, the surrounding culture, as Habakkuk looked at it, was bad enough. But you know what destroyed Habakkuk the most? And he entails it there in the first chapter. It's the realization that his people, the people of Judah, the people called by God were different only in degree and sometimes not that much from the people around them. Greed, violence he mentions, sexual immorality, idolatry, abuse, complaining, quarrelsome spirits, constant inner strife, love of money, lust for power, disregard, no care for the poor and the needy, condemnation of people who were trying to be righteous, God's people who really were trying to live good lives, and they're saying, and they're really going overboard. You know, these, it's just, you know, religion is good, but you're going a little bit overboard. See, those people who are trying to follow God, even they were attacked. See, those people were the rule, not the exception. People who were going their own way. They had long before begun to ignore the very things that God explicitly had told them to pursue and instead were pursuing the things he said to run fast from. And as a result, they, in effect, had slowly lost their minds and their spiritual sensibilities. For 150 years, God had sent the prophets to Judah. For 150 years, he had talked, he begged, he cajoled, he requested, he solicited, he tried to coax them to try to turn from their increasingly wicked ways, but they would not listen to any more God talk. It was just bouncing off them. It was like water off a duck's back. He even let them have a front seat to the total destruction of the ten northern tribes. We talked about this last week. Their brethren, the ten northern tribes, known as Israel, they were known as Judah, totally destroyed by the Assyrians. carried off, nobody left behind, just carried off, destroyed, as kind of a graphic example of what's about to happen if the talk ends. But they didn't listen. Now, here's the scary part. Ready? Here's the scary part. It's scary enough, right? Now it's getting worse, right? In their minds, they weren't rejecting God. They weren't rejecting God. If, If you talked to the average person on the street in Judah, just before the destruction came, they're going, what are you talking about? What do you mean? They say, yeah, yeah. We, we're in the synagogue on the Sabbath. We sit through the readings and the sermons. They're a little boring, but we sit through them anyway. When the orphan play comes around, we throw some shekels in, all right? We see the many lives around us crashing and burning, and when we see them, we feel bad. We really do. We feel bad. We're so sorry that this is happening, and that's happening, and there's poverty, and all, you know, drug use, and all these other stuff. We're sorry. We are, we're not a stone. We don't have a heart of stone. We really do feel sorry for that. But Habakkuk, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do about that? Okay. The dulling of their senses was well along, and they didn't even see it. See, they didn't even see it. And folks, i got to tell you, it happens all the time. Cultures and the people who comprise those cultures almost always center their lives on the most obvious source of their strength and their prosperity. If you look down through history, seagoing cultures had the sea and the storm gods. Strong agricultural cultures had their grain gods. Hunting cultures centered on the totem and the spirits that they thought controlled the animals. We have our own gods in the United States. 
We do. The United States, I think, can be looked at, and I don't think anybody would really challenge this, I think the United States can be looked at as the leading technological society maybe on the face of the earth right now. And the reason we became so technologically savvy, I'm pretty sure, is because we want a greater control of our lives. And technology affords us greater control over our lives. The kind of control that cutting-edge technology allows to a greater degree. We don't worship the sun god who nourishes the crops or the fertility god that blesses and enlarges the livestock and the pens. But we do tend to elevate and worship. What's worship? Worship is what? Giving worth to, giving ultimate worth to. We do tend to worship the latest and greatest gadgets that we feel will give us greater knowledge, greater control and convenience, which affords us control and security in our lives, which we so desperately want. We're very big on control. See, I don't even think we see that. Technological societies are very, very big on control. So we worship the tools which give us greater wealth that leads to control and better information and military technology. And the Greek historian Herodotus records that the Scythians, their very warlike culture, even made sacrifices to a sword. They'd have an iron sword and people were bowing down and they worshiping the sword and bringing their crops to the sword. Gee, you know, you look at that and you go, these people nuts? Well, guess what? Um... Maybe not as nutty even as us. In the story, it talks about the, you know, the guy going out and he takes his big net. That's Nebuchadnezzar. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. They're talking about the Babylonians. And he's taking his net and they're throwing out. And what does he say? About, what does he do to his, with his net? What does Nebuchadnezzar do with his net? You know what he does with it? He worships the net. The thing that brought his people what they wanted most, comfort. Living a lavish life, they got down and they worshiped. James Brockton points out that every culture eventually makes a god of the source of their standard of living. And to criticize that source has always been two things, unpatriotic or even blasphemous to civil religion. But if we as Christians want to maintain our sense, folks, and our sensibilities and not go out of our mind, we've got to be constantly vigilant, constantly examining if our allegiances are more aligned with the cultural gods which spring up in every nation that has ever been, or whether we're really traveling down the right path that God has set for us, a path that will guard us against the senses-killing ways of our affluent, control-hungry culture. And as we see clearly and straight, as God gives us grace to do so, we must never let those whom God loves and who Jesus came to die for merrily walk off a cliff to eternal judgment. God's not willing to let that happen. See, he's not willing to let it happen because his love, the Bible says, we just sang about it. His love is so sure and does not disappear when the sensibilities of those who he has settled his elective love upon, even when that waxes and wanes and we get hot and cold, God still loves us. His love never fails. That's what God is. That's who he is. He loves his children too much to sit idly by and let them walk off a cliff. See? Say, well, he's, he, God's a God of love. He'd never let you. You know what? He loves you too much to let you walk off that cliff, folks. Like any parent with a modicum of courage and strength and love for a child who they truly care about, they will discipline that child. In fact, the Bible says that those who don't discipline their children actually hate their children. They may say they love them, but they hate them because what they're preparing them for is a disastrous life. 
a life of failure. He will discipline those he loves who have taken on the distinctives of their senses, killing culture in the hope of bringing them back. My son, the writer of Hebrews says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Everyone he accepts as his son. God disciplines his children when they begin to take on the distinctives of their culture. He does. Some of the trials, some of the difficult situations and the hardships that we suffer in life can be traced, listen, listen, can be traced directly to the discipline of God whose chief desire is to see our senses restored to save us from destruction, and to enjoy the good life that he has prepared for all those whom he calls his children. That's a hard word, but it's a true word, and it's what Habakkuk is talking about. Listen, God disciplines his children when they begin to take on the distinctives of their culture. But it's funny. God also uses many times unorthodox means and unorthodox methods to discipline his children at the same time, which sometimes causes us to scratch our heads. What methods does he use? Sometimes the means by which he addresses the problems that, if not corrected, will lead to the next step uh, are unexpected. Most people, you know who you'll listen to if somebody sits you down? Let's go back to the talk phase, you know, the talk before you get to the, you know, the talk phase. Who do you listen to when somebody sits you down? You probably will listen to a respected teacher. If you have a real good relationship with a parent, you probably listen to a parent or, or uh, a respected mentor or an expert in their field. Someone who says, hey, girl, you'd better get some help. You better figure this thing out and let me walk with you if you let me so we can figure this stuff out together. Because if you don't, you got bad days coming ahead. See, and sometimes people will hear that, you know, like David with Nathan, and all the pain is avoided. All the pain is avoided. Authority figures, let me just tell you something right now, and I thought about this. If you're an authority figure to anybody, your word carries more weight than you know. There is someone who will listen to you. Your words can keep someone from getting to the painful stage. I'm telling you right now. Just don't, don't minimize what your words can do and what they mean. Sometimes God uses folk like that in our life. And sometimes he uses folk that we never would think or never expect. Sometimes he uses people who are younger than us. <laughs> you know, there's, there's something about uh, people, older people, and a younger person comes to them, you know, with good motivation and stuff, and they come respectfully, they come, you know, honoring, and they say something, and they're going, what are you, what are you, what do you know? You don't know anything. You, how old are you? <laughs> what are you? You're 26. <laughs> You're a baby. You're a baby, all right? You barely even learn. What, what, what do you got to teach me? You got nothing to teach me. You know what? You know what Paul said to a young pastor by the name of Timothy? Don't let them despise you in your youth. See, if you are speaking the words of God, if you are speaking truth, if you have checked yourself, you know what? Don't let them look down on you. They look down at you at their own expense. They will suffer if they, because sometimes God will humble us by sending someone younger than us to bring words of life that we needed to hear. Sometimes it's, you know, it's people we don't expect older people. When people get to a certain age and say, 
What? They don't know. They don't know. You know, I, I love, I love these uh, sometimes. Uh, they look at older pastors. I'm talk, talking clergy now. Like, you guys, you're good in your day. You don't know what you're talking about now. See, there's new methods now. There's new methods. We got, we got it going now. You know what? You should be learning from us. And, but you know what? A lot of times God brings older people who may not know all the latest thing and greatest. But you know what? There's something they have. They, have a lot, they do have a lot of experience. They've walked a long way with God. And you know what? People who are really over the hill will say a word that we need to hear. And you know what? God speaks through them. Unexpected. Unexpected. Sometimes people who are even less obvious, people who we know for a fact don't have our best interest at heart, people that are vying for our job, people who are obviously ethically challenged or morally compromised or who are not even Christians at all, the furthest thing from it. Does God ever bring a wake-up call to his people whom he loves and whom he doesn't want to go over the cliff through folks such as these? The answer is yes. He does. Scripture is full of examples. And Habakkuk is freaking out. He can't figure out, how in the world could you send the Babylonians? This this is a gross people. We're not even as bad as them. Why in the world would you use people like that? Well, you know what? He used people like Balaam, a false prophet in the Old Testament. He used King Cyrus to bring a voice of warning to his people. And we find it so strange that God would initiate discipline through voices like this to deliver blows that cause us pain but are ultimately administered by God to bring back those who have lost their senses and are headed for disaster. God knew that his people needed correction. Talking, eh, over, didn't work. And Habakkuk is told that the Babylonians would soon be knocking at the gates and doing the correcting. You, Lord, he said, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. And now they're all staring down the barrel of a gun labeled Babylon. God once and for all was going to erase the national sin that Judah had taken on in Israel before them. But here was an instrument in the hands of God, as I said, who charitably speaking were much worse than the nation they were being used to correct. Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Verse 14, you have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Do you see a man who's in anguish? Talk about unlikely instruments. He doesn't even get it. Judah was bad, but Babylon was wicked. Conquest was a national sport. Nothing made them happier because it afforded them the path to what they desired most, luxury. And after they caught the cities and the nations, dragging them into slavery, they made sacrifices to their nets and the hooks that they used to grab them. History tells us that the Babylonians were a very exceptionally cruel people, and now they were being used by God to chastise his own people, to inflict painful Discipline to bring down the hammer. And how in the world does that make sense? How does that make sense? 
Habakkuk said, Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Now, Habakkuk had his senses intact. He did. He had all his senses, spiritual senses, were operating. So he understood what was happening around him. Most others did not. One of the problems with having impaired senses is that we often can't recognize our pain as discipline from the Lord. Why? Because our senses are already stunted. They're already shrunken. Listen to this. How ridiculous would it be if a parent, you know, stormed into the house one night, okay, stormed into the house, and dad says, go to your room right now, young man. Go right now, and and you just sit there and think about things for a while. And give me that cell phone, too. And you're not going to be fooling around on your cell phone while you're in there. Now, nothing had happened. Okay, there was nothing that happened that day as far as... But I got to tell you this. What the father said, it looks and smells and tastes and feels like what? It it, it smells like corrective punishment, doesn't it? Doesn't it kind of... Isn't that kind of the words you hear when someone wants someone to stop going in the direction they're going? Doesn't it sound like that? But there's no context. Nothing had happened. If this is discipline, you're going, well, look, either this guy at best is unreasonable. At most, he's lost his mind. I mean, he is absolutely crazy. There's no context. Folks... If you are in pain right now, if it is the discipline from the Lord, most of the time, people don't even know it. See, because their senses are already dulled. Sometimes God institutes painful corrective measures in the life of those he loves, but the measures for all the world look crazy or even arbitrary. What in the world is this about? This makes no sense at all. But remember something. God institutes corrective measures to people whose senses have already been compromised. So, it may be that the wicked boss at work, the unreasonable landlord, the physical challenge, the illness, the neighbor who has given you intense grief and whose property, you just wish there'd be an earthquake and their whole house would just go right down, right? I mean, it's like, oh, it's terrible. You'd be going, all right. You know, I mean, you know, we have people like the relational issues that continue to hurt Maybe that's God's way in reaching you, but you don't even know it. We don't even know it. Most people never, listen, most people never, and I mean never, look at particularly painful periods that they may be going through and say in their mind, I wonder if this is God working trying to get my attention. I wonder if this is God's discipline. Folks, I have never once had someone ask me to help them determine if their painful situation was God's disciplinary measures in their lives. And I have only sporadically asked it of my own painful situations. But I've never heard anybody else say it. Parents, let me ask you something. How often do you discipline your kids? Once every 10 years? Every leap year? Oh, this year. It's leap year this year, isn't it? Hey, we could do it again. Hey, fantastic, all right? That's good. You probably discipline your kids regularly. Why do we consider or even think or don't consider that the pain we may be experiencing may be God desperately trying to get us to change course before the damage is too great and the end is near destruction? God at times uses unorthodox means and methods to discipline his children. Now listen, don't get me wrong, okay? Don't be running out of here now. Close the doors. Don't let anybody leave yet. I'm almost done, but I'm not all done, okay? Sometimes the pain we experience is because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes we are the collateral damage of someone else's sin, and God is working through that perhaps too to build character in us, 
James talks about that. But sometimes we're experiencing God's loving discipline. Listen, God disciplines his children when they begin to take on the distinctives of their culture. Second, God at times uses unorthodox means and methods to discipline his children. We see that in Habakkuk 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. God sometimes uses methods that seem to make no sense to bring us to our senses. Final point. Final point. How do you know? How do you distinguish between the normal pain that living in a broken world brings and the discipline of God? And then, after that, what do you do? When you know you're suffering the pain of the discipline of God. Now, what he does is, is put into play Habakkuk some very general principles that we're going to look at in just one verse, some very general principles that I think are for all the times when we're in pain, but I think can easily be applied to when we're, we're under the disciplined pain that God has brought into our lives to save us. Anybody looking for, for answers from God. And it says in chapter 2 and verse 1, it says this. Okay, he's, he's freaking out. He doesn't get it. You know, using the Babylonians, we got it. I know they're bad, but they're really bad. I mean, what in the world? And he says in verse 1, his mind is spinning. He says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. You know what he did? And this is great advice. He decided to wait. He decided to wait on the Lord. And he waited in several ways. And I think we need to wait in several ways. We need to wait, number one, patiently. We need to wait patiently. If we're trying to determine if the pain that we are going through is the disciplining pain of God or it's something else, we need to wait. Habakkuk, he's perplexed, he's disturbed. God's going to use his wicked nation to inflict a hurt on his people. More than these people who don't even know God exists. And he's desperately questioning and probably even wondering if he's not hearing right. Wait a minute, could you tell me that one again? Or if he's reading the tea leaves right or he's, you know, whatever. So he decided to do a very good thing. He decides to wait. Now, the Hebrew word, which is used in two verses down, we're going to look at it, we'll see it next week, uh, in verse 3, where he's telling, he's waiting for something else. The Hebrew word, wait, means patient. It means to be patient. One of the most basic things we can do when we are seeking out the wisdom of God is to wait, to wait on the Lord. It makes no sense. It's the thing that... You know, we're confused, we're perplexed, you don't know what's going on in your life, you're in the middle of difficulties. Instead of giving up, blowing up, you know what he did? He went to the watchtower and he was patient. That's what waiting on the Lord means. Be patient in your troubles. Be patient in your circumstances. Often if we are experiencing the discipline of the Lord, it will take some time to fully realize that. Don't think, you know what, you're going to go home right now, or you're going to come to the altar or something. And go, ah, I get it. Maybe, but I doubt it. You know why I doubt it? Because it's going to take time to fully realize. You know why? Because if you've gotten to the place where you're getting a hurt put on you by a loving God who wants to draw you back, your senses have already been dulled. You're not even perceiving right, okay? You don't even realize. It's like the guy running in and starting to yell and screaming and, you know, get in your room and what? You don't even realize it. It's, you've got to be, wait patiently. And I'll tell you something. What patience takes, it takes humility. Most of us don't wait Patiently, with great humility. One person wrote this. Most of us, when this happens to us, most of us don't say when bad things happen, when difficulties come upon us, when disappointments happen, real disappointments some of us are facing right now, we don't say, what an opportunity for me to become the kind of person I've always wanted to be. My loved ones always wanted me to be, and God wants me to be right now. How many people say that? See, we're not saying that. 
Let God use your searching time to make you into something better. When you meet disappointments with patience, it turns you into something great and good. Consider it all joy, James says, when you face trials of many kinds because the testing of your faith can produce patience. If it produces patience, the patience will finish its work so that you will be complete and you will lack nothing. When trouble happens and difficulties happen to you, say, I'm going to vote for my own personal growth and I'm not going to flail around. Second, we need to wait with a proper perspective. He said, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. Ramparts is basically a tower. Why did they build these things in cities? What do you think? I can see all the way to the last row up there. You know what? And if I was three or four feet higher, man, I'd probably, you know, even see, I could probably even see more things. Maybe I could see out the Route 280 or something. See, the higher you go, the more you can see. There was always invading armies. There was always people trying to steal into the city. And so they, they would station these guards in the ramparts so that, you know what they got? They got a clear perspective of everything. Folks, when your senses are dulled, one thing you don't have is a clear perspective. You do not have a clear perspective of things. So he, he went up into the tower, spiritually speaking, so he can look over the land, get a lay of the land, not just simply look at his problem. You have to put that problem into the bigger perspective, and the only way to do that is to have a bigger perspective, a greater lay of the land by going to God's word, by speaking to him regularly about it. He doesn't want to hide the fact from you. James says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. That verse, if you look at it in James chapter 1, is in the context, it's a specific context of trials and tribulations. If you lack wisdom in trials, as the bitterness of, of either discipline or, or the, the, the fact that we live in a fallen world, as it comes to you, if you go to God, God doesn't want to hide it from you. God wants to give you the wisdom. He wants to give you the understanding. God, he wants to tell you. He wants to put it in context. So you know what? We need a new perspective. Third, we need to wait obediently. If you're on sentry, you're in the watchtower, it doesn't matter if it starts to rain or, you, you know, you, I'm tired, you know, I'm, I, I'm, gonna, I'm knocking off. There hasn't been any enemies. There's nothing. Everything looks good. I see it, you know. And, you go, and so you say that to the, your sergeant. He said, where, where are you going? Where are you going? Ah, you know what? I'm just a little tired. I'm going to go ahead and lie down. That ain't happening. I mean, that's, that's not going to happen. Folks, um, he doesn't leave his post. He waits. He sticks. He stays obediently. He doesn't leave his post. He's struggling with God. There's no question about it. He's struggling enormously with God, emotionally, intellectually. Very realistic, this book of Habakkuk. He doesn't get it, but he sticks. Folks, I was out with a couple of people from our church last night, and uh, there was someone who served that. You know what they call someone who serves you in a restaurant? It's called a, a waiter, a server, a waiter. Now, I got to tell you something. One thing the waiter did not do, when you think that waiting is this, the waiter was in constant motion. The waiter was constantly served. Can I fill that glass with you? No, it's been three is enough. You know, that's, that, that, you know, good. Can I get a little bit more? You guys doing okay? How you, you know, a little more guacamole? Oh, yeah, yeah, bring us another one. You know, you can do whatever you want. So 
He was in constant motion, the guy, you know. I don't know how anybody could ever be overweight as a, as a waiter because they're in constant motion. They're doing work. They're carrying these heavy things. I'm looking at them. I'm getting tired. I feel like saying, will you please sit down? I can't stand this anymore. Just everybody relax, relax. Waiting does not mean sitting around doing nothing. It's working. It's moving ahead. Continue to worship the thing we don't do when we hurt. Continue to meet with, the, with your small group. Continue in private prayer. Continue reading the Bible. Continue serving people. Don't stop serving people. Why? Because usually we're, we're filled with self-pity. We feel bad about ourselves. We feel bad about the situation. We're in pain. And you know what? We stop doing the very things we got to keep doing. If you're a waiter, you're moving. You're moving ahead. And if you don't, that's leaving your post. Instead, you know what? We get weary. We get disappointed. God's not answering, so we want to feel good. You know, so you do things with sex. You do things with money. You do things with food. You do things to make yourself feel good. And you know what? It makes you feel good for about five minutes, and then you feel worse than you did before. The ultimate example of patience, you know what it is? It's Jesus Christ waiting for you. It's Jesus Christ waiting for you. And here's what I want to ask you. If you see Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, willing to lay aside all his celestial being and all his joy that he had, and everybody, you know, snap your fingers, and they're, it's, they're there, his, his wish is their command. Laying aside his celestial being, coming down to wait on you by going to the cross and giving up even in the Garden of Gethsemane, even on the cross, even under the wrath of God, if he just keeps going and keeps obedient and keeps sticking in there, why can't you wait for him now to find out what he's doing in your life? Why you're hurting? Why you're in pain? Why can't you wait for him now? Last one. Last one. What do you do? You waiting? You know what happens? God tells you. He lets you know. There's a day that comes and you say, you know what? I think, I think God's telling me this. I really do. What do you do? Well, here's what you do. You repent and you receive his forgiveness and his grace. I love 2 Corinthians 7.14. It's a great promise that we need to hold on to. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land Folks, when his discipline becomes apparent, repent and receive his forgiveness. And you know what 2 Chronicles 7 says? Then the healing begins immediately. This is a promise from the Lord. It's a promise. If we lift our eyes up and acknowledge where our healing comes from, acknowledge our sin, God's promise is that the painful discipline work that he's doing in your life out of love so that you don't head over the cliff and he wants to restore your senses. See, it begins to end and you begin to be healed. See, right away. God sometimes uses methods that seem to make no sense to bring us to our senses. Where are you today? Are you willing, are you willing to ask God in your most painful situation, stop saying, God, relieve it, God, relieve it, God, relieve it, God, bring healing. Right now, we're going to claim the name of Jesus, and we, you know, Satan's out of there. We're, and God's going, you ain't asking the right questions. You ain't asking the right questions. See, I'm trying to get you, I'm trying to get you to hear. I'm trying to do something great in your life, and your senses are so dull, you can't even hear me. 
Are you willing to do that today?